out of the sky My dreams went crashing when you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be Hello, and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So let's just uh, jump right in and uh, dig deeper into the fourth volume of the Selected Letters of, of Lovecraft. So uh, if you've been following us, you know that's what we're doing right now. Um, we're going to have a couple more episodes after this one where we'll finish up the fourth volume of the Selected Letters before getting into the final set of, of stories, uh, something I'm really excited to, to get into. Uh, but first, we got a few more letters to talk about, um, about 50 or so. So in this episode, we'll cover letters from the period of October 1933 to January 1934. Uh, we're looking at letters to 11 different correspondents. Um, so a lot of these are just uh, one letter to one person. The largest selection is to Clark Ashton Smith, in which we have five letters to him. Um, and yeah, um, but it's a, a widespread of topics here. Um, so let's just jump in and, and see where these letters let us take us, uh, shouldn't we? All right, the first uh, letter we have is a single letter to uh, Elizabeth Tolbridge, dated um, October 17th. Um, not much to say about this letter. Um, as you know from previous episodes, one of the issues in his personal life around this time was this broken leg that his aunt had. And he's been, at this point, explaining to uh, Toldridge that he's walking with her and taking her along on trips to New England. So she's uh, recovering quite nicely. Um, and then he also mentioned something we've talked about before, at least mentioned before, and that's he ghost wrote an article on the impact of the Dutch culture and Dutch civilization on New England history. Um, so that's that's all to say about that. Not much uh, to Toldridge in this set. Um, so let's jump into the biggest group of letters we have to any one person in this set, and that's to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, so I, as I recall, we got a, a wide variety of topics in this in this set. Um, so the first is uh, is talking a little bit more about his travels in New England. It's autumn, right? So it's something we expect. He often takes a lot of these walking tours of New England towns, or he did in uh, in the summer and autumn of uh, while he was living in Providence. And this is, and he would often talk about them in his letters. We've seen this uh, dozens and dozens of times here. Um, he does mention finding a new uh, location here, uh, the Thomas Clements House, which I'm not sure if it's still around or can be visited, but it's something he didn't see see before. And he talks about of course, he's saying this to Clark Ashton Smith, who is a painter, is a multi-talented artist, a writer, a sculptor, and a painter. And he says he wishes he had the ability to paint himself. But the bulk of this letter deals with dreams. And um, I think this is the dream that later gets uh, published as The Wicked Clergyman, which is a story... I don't think actually I might have to go back and, and record something about that story because I don't think I got to it yet. But it's a story he that's based based on his dream. It's kind of like the that Roman dream where he it got published based on his the re report he gives in the letters. This is kind of like that. So 
it's a it's a short little tale that it's in many anthologies of his of his collected works um but he describes uh he gives this description of his dream so uh, i could get a couple of those to various people at this time um but yeah read it if you want to know about that dream uh next we have uh november 13th so a bit of a jump between these two letters um but it's also about dreaming um and this is a description of a dream that he also thinks could be a story so moving right along uh november 18th it gets a little more interesting uh, I, feel, I mean lovecraft dreams are always interesting but for, for me for my purposes here this is a little bit more interesting and this is about the reality of fifth century gaul and around this time he read a, a history of roman britain um this history um, changed, or at least it didn't really change his views on, on Roman Britain, but it convinced him that Britain remained Roman um, for, you know, culturally Roman, even after the fall of the Roman Empire, which is something that's kind of important for him because he has this Anglo-American identity and he has this fondness for the Roman Empire. So he's able to make a continuity, right, to say King Arthur was actually like a Roman or a Latin speaker. Anyways, he read a book about this, and this has him thinking about um, this transition from the Roman Empire to the medieval age. And so he talks about the reality of 5th century Gaul here uh, a little bit, which he does see as much more of a continuous history with the Roman Empire. For reasons I think are pretty clear if you've been following Lovecraft's philosophy of history um, up to this point. He talks a little bit about correcting the use of language, which is something he's pretty sensitive about. We've seen him say this a lot to August Derleth, where he's trying to convince him to, to uh, you know, use appropriate language or language right for the time or right for the place. Um, and he talks quite a lot about his sense, our sensory uh, capacities and our limited ability to understand the outside world. So he does touch into cosmic horror in this letter as well. So. Um, a few important topics there. Um, then we have a letter on November 29th where he talks about his dreams increasing and increasing in intensity and increasing in, in like he, he mentions how there was a period of time where his number of his dreams slowed down. Um, and he says, well, my number of dreams are increasing now and, and becoming more common. And he gives a detail of a fairly, fairly long dream. I'm not going to read the whole dream. It covers about two pages in the selected letters, but there's some tonal aspects here, which I think might be interesting or maybe what you're appetizing for going in, finding this and reading it yourself. He writes this. Um, then, although the outlines of the walls remained perfectly clear, my vision began to take in vast vistas of space, represented by aggregations of gigantic cubes scattered along a gulf of violent radiation. Whilst my mind began to feel an intolerable consciousness of unrolled eons, as if all the eternity were about to pour its simultaneous burdens onto me, it's impossible to describe such a mixed sensation, and it lacks absolutely the definitiveness and dramatic value needed for fiction. In the dream, I was alarmed and repelled, and I seemed to recognize some known and definite evil, which I cannot recall now. I felt obliged to do something towards stopping this rite, and feigned an illness and a wish to retire." End quote. And then this gets into the little plot of the story, which involves him doing just, just that, uh, confronting this, this evil. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good dream to read. Uh, so next we have December 13th, uh, 1933, uh, where he talks about uh, the thing on the doorstep. And this is an interesting letter. 
because uh, I don't think it ever happened, but he does talk about the pub, you know, the writing of the thing on the doorstep, which is one of his good later stories. It's it's relatively short. It's a nice quick read. I think many Lovecraft fans know them. It's got that really wonderful start where he's like, I've emptied four bowls into my friend, uh, you know, maybe saving the last one for myself. Uh, and then he goes in to describe why he killed his friend, who he no longer saw as his friend. And it's a it's a mind-swapping tale, like Shadow of Time or or The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. It's got some parables to it, but it's got some really great body humor. It's a good story. And that's the story we'll, we'll cover a little bit later on this podcast. But he mentions how he would revise his story. And revisions that might be worthy to have in this tale. And then he talks a little bit more about his early fascination with, with Rome. So that's the five letters to Clark Ashton Smith. So quite a lot about dreams here in this section, which is something we haven't seen Lovecraft talk too much about in some of the recent episodes uh, of our exploration into these letters. So um, next up, Natalie Woolley. So she was another poet uh, in Lovecraft Circle, a more recent correspondent. Not like Tolbridge was a, a poet he's been writing to for a long time. Woolley... Uh, yeah, another poet, um, another writer. We have two letters to to her. Um, the first of these is October 24th, 1933, um, where he talks about his own changing style, which is something any reader of Lovecraft who reads his story systematically, chronologically is aware of. It's something we've actually come up a lot in this set of letters because he's felt, he began to feel that his change of style has made himself unreadable for the weird tales audience and he's been very frustrated by that um and he talks about like the the transition from stories like the festival which he actually complained about in a in an earlier letter in the last episode we we talked about that where he, he doesn't really think the story holds up I, I disagree with him on that but that's what he said um and he says comparing to uh to witch house it's such a dramatically different style and i, I agree with him on that 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 the style is very very different but i think both are really good stories so, um, but you can tell he's got a, he's, you know, he's got a little bit of ambivalence, both about the festivals and dreams of the witch house. And it, it kind of builds up this feeling of displacement in his, in his career. Um, then we have another one to her on November 27th of 33. This is a bigger letter, um, dealing with some, some kind of big issues, but nothing really new for us. Uh, if you've been following along, uh, quite a lot here about the decline of the West, which is a common trope uh, in his letters. It's not so much in his stories, but it's certainly in the backdrop of his stories. It's on his mind, you can tell from reading these letters. But generally, he talks about civilizational decline and civilizational progress. Um, and he mentions cyclical theories of civilizations. So he thinks civilizations have this kind of a, a permanence, but... He thinks progress is, is mythical. Let, let's look at what he says here. Let's break it down. Um, he says, My view is pretty well upheld by Spengler in his monumental decline of the West. War and graft will never cease, since they are merely the working out of permanent and eradicable human instincts. Of course, ingenuity and common sense may find ways to reduce the number of major armed conflicts and to check up more closely on political thieving. But the old instincts are still at work. We'll use just as much cleverness on their side as can ever be used against them. Every individual and group is and always will be out for 
everything it can possibly get in any possible way. It is all very well to outlaw war, but it will inevitably crop up sooner or later, whether we call it war or not. Whenever a group wants certain things bad enough and cannot get it through peaceful channels, it will snatch it by force the first moment it feels able to defeat whatever combination of forces can be brought against it. And two, whenever any loophole for civic theft exists, there will always be plenty of officials to take advantage of it. Progress is an illusion. The most civilized period in the world of history was probably the age of Pericles of Athens. End quote. And then, then he talks about alien civilizations a little bit and how that kind of fits into a broader um, thesis about the rise and fall of civilizations. But his general idea is that the kind of human nature is kind of horrible and civilization might confine it a little bit, but you can't take away the fundamental toxicity of, 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 of human beings. And this leads to a, a rather cyclical nature of, of civilizations. So that's what we have uh, to Natalie Woolley. Um, next, we have uh, three letters to James Ferdinand Morton, his good friend. Um, and as, as common in these period of his letters, these, these letters to him tend to be pretty personal, not too much based on theory. theory. We saw those earlier in our explore, exploration of letters. But uh, here, lately, I've noticed that his letters to Morton tend to be much more just about like letters you write to a friend about what you're up to, right? And that's the case with some of these as well. Um, the first of these is October 31st, uh, of course, Halloween, 1933. And he's talking about hitchhiking. And I, there must have been some back and forth about hitchhiking because he says he doesn't really hitchhike. He, you know, gentlemen don't ask for favors is his justification for why he doesn't hitchhike and, and get rides. But he does mention about one time in 1929 where he did ask for a ride. Um, so that's one topic they banter about. And the next topic they get into is is a little bit more interesting philosophically, and that's having um, that's about the necessity of commerce. He thinks it's bad for psychology. It, it kind of treats people as tools. It's it's kind of it reduces people in a way. Uh, it's bad for our own personal psychology too to commodify everything. But he thinks it's a necessary evil. So he's a bit of conservative on this fact. Morton maybe challenged him to envision a society in which commerce wasn't necessary. And Lovecraft, his conservatism makes it hard for him to imagine. An alternative, but he still is, you know, he's old-fashioned enough to think that there's something about capitalist exchange that's a bit, a bit gross, anyways. But he just thinks it's a necessary evil that can't really be uh, avoided. Um, uh, next, we have a very short uh, letter to Morton on November 21st, where he mentions the acceptance of the Silver Key sequel, um, which, of course, is going to bring in some money for him. It's kind of a big achievement. Um, I, I do want to say something about the, I don't know if this is a problem with the selection of the edited, selected letters, or the editing of the selected letters, or if it's actually what Lovecraft focused on, because I was looking at uh, the revisions from like 1931 to, to 33, when he more or less stopped writing them, and there's a handful after that, but there's a lot in those early 30s. Um, and he mentioned writing a lot of revisions in his letters, but he never talked about the process in, for too many of them. It, it, but with the Silver Key, we got a lot of details about how the story was written, sent into Weird Tales, proposed, uh, edited, you know, the back and forth between, uh, between Price and Lovecraft was all detailed here. We don't get that with many other of the revisions that I know exist because I actually was, was going through them and preparing to read them 
for upcoming episodes. So I don't know if that's just the, the editors chose to focus on this revision as one kind of representative, or was Lovecraft just not that interested in talking about some of the other revisions he did? Um, I don't know. So next we have uh, James Ferdinand Morton, December 29th, 1933, where uh, he talks about a visit to New York, to Bloomingdale, New, New York. Uh, and we get a lot of Anglophilia in this letter, something he's pretty comfortable sharing with James Morton. Uh, we've seen it many, many times before. But why is he in Bloomingdale? Why is he in New York? Well, there's a Christmas celebration at, at Loveman's. Um, so this is actually, that's actually the last letter in the selection. So I think I may have said we're going to go through January 34, but I'm wrong. It's actually only through December 1933. I think we'll pick up with January in the very next episode. All right, so that's all we have on James Ferdinand Morton. Um, and now we have a bunch of other correspondence to talk about. Most of these are only one letter. Uh, first of these is to Bernard Dwyer. Um, oh, yeah, this is good. This is where he talks about this book he read about Roman Britain um, by a guy named Weigel. And the book's called Wanderings in Roman Britain. It sounds like it's kind of a popular history. It doesn't sound too academic-y. But it's, uh, it's some speculation about Roman Britain and the fall of Roman Britain. And this really excited Lovecraft for a couple of reasons. One is this idea that King Arthur spoke Latin. You know, it creates this continuity, as I said, continuity between ancient Rome and, and modern Britain in a way, which is something Lovecraft really would, would love to, to be able to establish. Because his two periods are 18th century and Rome. These are the ones he really goes back to and loves. Uh, and imagines himself in the most. Um, but you have this issue of this kind of decline of the Roman civilization in the Middle Ages. But if you can establish that the foundations of, of like modern England are still Roman at their roots, then you, you kind of, you never have to really, that kind of synthesizes his identity in, in an interesting way. Um, so also in this book, there seems to be a lot about Britain as a Roman culture, as I said, um, and that there's Roman cultural remembrances in, in more modern British culture, which, or at least English culture, right? Um, there's, of course, the, the, it's kind of a coincidence, I guess, but the, the parts of, of the British Isles that got conquered by the, like the Anglo-Saxon invaders, right, were more and more cor corresponded with like the parts that the Romans controlled, right? The Romans never occupied like the Scotlands, but neither did the Germanic invaders, right? So those are more of the Celtic regions. Um, so I think he's talking, he talks about Britain, but I, I think in a way he's really think focusing on England here. Um, but this is all a way for Lovecraft to draw like a line between himself and the Roman Empire in a very continuous way. So that's why he seemed to really like this, this book. So that's all. It's, it's a good letter, though. It's, it's one I think that's fairly uh, significant. Um, so next we have uh, Robert Block. We have two letters to Robert Block, one in November and one in December. The one in November uh, is, is fun. It's, it sees uh, Lovecraft complaining about oratory uh, and complaining about basically sophism. He thinks oratory lends itself towards sophism and rhetoric and instead of proper argument. I think that's not a good thing. So he has a, tends to pref a preference for written arguments. He likes the text. He thinks it's more uh, conducive to actually seeking out the truth compared to 
you know, a, a conversation with uh, in, in a group and in an oral argument where you're going to be much more likely to to feed off the crowd's energy or push a particular argument for your own popularity, your own purposes. Um, and he actually then goes into the tricks of the oral debaters, um, which, of course, is something I'm sure you would learn a little bit about if you took like a rhetoric class. Um, so that's that. Um, next, where is it? No, sorry, it's just the one. I, I my notes are wrong. It's actually Robert E. Howard. Um, I must have transposed things. The two Roberts got confused a little bit. Sorry for that. So just just the one letter to block. Um, next. Uh, who's this person? Mate E. S uh, Sutton. I couldn't find too much about this woman. It seems to be a, a, a wife of, of a friend or, so, or an acquaintance of his. So um, anyways, we only have one letter to her in this set. We'll see if she comes up later. Um, it's, it's about his kind of walking tours again in his tours of New England in the autumn. And particularly he talks about discovery of new pathways. Uh, in his home area, new vistas, new places to discover, which you can imagine Lovecraft getting really, really excited about. Uh, that even around Providence, there's always new things to discover, um, which that's probably true of, of, of many, many places. Um, but not much to say about this letter, so we'll just move on. Next, we have two letters to Robert E. Howard. Um, and once again, I'll tell you that uh, I'll be saving my more long comments about this letter and the other Robert E. Howard letters till we can really do the back and forth and read the Robert E. Howard letters and the Lovecraft responses and back and forth in a little more detail and a little more systematically. I don't know quite the approach I'm going to do to, to, to take that yet. Is it going to be a lot of episodes or a few? Um, certainly some of these letters you could spend a whole you know hour-long episode on if you wanted. Um, but anyways, the thing I want to say is the first letter here is really, really quite long. It's, um, it, it took him three days, three or four days to write. It's dated November 2nd to 5th, um, 1933. And I'll just mention some of the topics here. Um, autumn wanderings, um, his dislike of the festival, the story he wrote, um, storytelling about witchcrafts and the importance of the story of the or the nonfiction book, the Witch Cults of Northern, oh, sorry, Western Europe, which is a book he's by by a woman named Murray, who argued that these witch cults were real things. Uh, he talks about the completion of the thing on the doorstep, um, and there's a long conversation here about the toxicity that their debate seemed to have gone into, and and the feeling of by Howard that that Lovecraft was being offended or this, you know, the, the debate between them over civilization and barbarism was getting kind of nasty and tense. And Lovecraft kind of steps back and says, you know, personal, personal feelings aren't that important in a debate like this. We need to seek objective truth. I don't mean to be, you know, you're my friend. I don't mean to upset you. Um, and so there's a, it, it's kind of an apology, if you will, but it's also trying to say, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to make you mad. We're, we're good friends. It's uh, the kind of apology you may have given at some point when, you know, a conversation with a buddy of yours has gone off the rails. 
And that, that's kind of, but there's maybe some philosophy behind here too, where we see Lovecraft saying, now what is the perp, why are we even doing these letters, right? We're trying to seek truth and that requires some objectivity and neutrality and we shouldn't let emotion and passions get involved too much into it. Um, so there's that. Then he goes into a more systematic defense of civilization and he even talks about like a Gothic church as uh, a product of, of civilization. And he says something really interesting here. He writes, Nobody is disposed to question the value of a Gothic church's foundation stones and buttresses, even while pointing to the towers, traceries, rose windows, and the finales of the elements of emotional exaltation which caused it to be built. We say that these towers and traceries are higher types of expression than the mechanical supports because they are the actual emotional products which formed a reason for the church's building. There would be no need for mechanical supports if there were no higher structures to support, end quote. Now this, I think, is working for him as a metaphor for civilization, right? That you have the foundational elements of the civilization, which, of course, you need to have the culture, but the culture is the whole reason for having that foundation of a civilization in its first place, right? Um, um, but he does say there could be other foundations, other cultures that are just as well, just as good. Um, he writes, uh, do not, oh, where is it? Uh, I take it for granted that an equally high standard of order, courage, endurance, etc., must be cultivated. Without the latter qualities, no nation can long be worthy of respect, whether it's mental or artistic heights. And that's another common thing he often will say is that all these cultures have their own peaks and valleys, if you will. Um, but it, he does get into quite a lot here about the, the nature of high human development and how it requires civilization, which, of course, is the heart, I think, of his argument with with Howard. Um, then he gets into what he thinks is the best political system uh, in for the world and he says maybe kind of an elected sort of fascism would be best we've seen him talking about this before um you know who's the, who's voting and what would that even look like it's not entirely clear to me but he's still thinking this machine age requires some sort of fascism to to organize it and to prevent it from being just a, a, a vulgar technocracy um and he also talks about, a little bit about creativity and what he thinks is the best foundation for creativity. And again, it, it's civilization. So um, that's that. Um, then we have a December 17th letter to Robert E. Howard, where I'm not going to say much about this uh, because it, it goes through Lovecraft's ancestry again, which is a thing he's done many, many times in his letters. And it doesn't really interest me that much, but um, it interests Lovecraft quite a lot. And it was something that many of his, uh, the people he wrote seem to have been interested in because they bore with him as he, as he did this. Um, all right, next, I guess this is the last really significant letter in the set that I need to talk about. And that's to J. Vernon Shea, dated November 8th. Now, we've been seeing in the last couple episodes that there's been a, growing conversation about fascism right um, and about race between lovecraft and shea and it went back there's a lot of lovecraft's responses are long which suggests that vernon shea was making fairly systematic responses to some of what he's saying about his 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 feelings about hitler right Remember in the last episode i think we talked about where he, you know how lovecraft went through what he thinks hitler's program is and what he thinks is is good about it and he basically approves of most of the program um, so he says some pretty horrible things in this letter. Um, this this 
conversation is kind of off the rails, I think. Uh, but it's here, and it's, I guess it's important to at least acknowledge and look at. Uh, first, he, he goes into a long rant about Jewish control of advertising and how they control the narrative of culture through advertising. Um, he doesn't really provide too much evidence of this. He just sort of says, well, if you don't see it, it's because it's all kind of behind the scenes anyways. That's what I really mean by control. Um, so it's it's kind of, a, it's, it falls into CT. Uh, way, it's way too close to conspiracy theory and, and the vulgar anti-Semitism that that, that we so we're seeing in this period of, of world history. Um, then he goes into the feeling, like, what's it like being, what's it like to feel, this is also kind of really gross. He, he talks about that feeling of losing one's home because of immigration, right? These people coming in, and by their very presence, they're taking away my home, right? This is very much like, uh, it's almost like the Trump phenomenon, right? Like, it's, it's more the American thing. I, I think there's a, like for the Nazis, who a lot of this conversation began with the conversation about the, the rise of Hitler. You know, the Jews were in Europe for hundreds of years, right? So they weren't recent immigrants into the region. Um, so that, you know, Europeans kind of approached the problem a little bit differently. Americans at the time were having a lot of, a lot of immigration at the turn of the century from many different cultures. Uh, mostly European, but from different parts of Europe with different religious traditions and different values. And you had largely Jewish immigration. And you could feel in a lifetime, I guess, the changing of the neighborhood or the changing of, of local cultures. Um, but, you know, you know, Lovecraft kind of veers really, what I'm trying to say here is Lovecraft's really veering into a kind of make America great again sort of argument about you know, where's my country sort of going? I guess that's the South Park one version of that, right? Where's my country going? He gets into that, and he talks about how language is a part of it. And if you remember back to some of his letters uh, that he wrote from New York, he would talk about how language, he would hear other languages being spoken and how horrifying it was for him. So this is kind of a, a low point, another low point in Lovecraft's uh, letters, and they tend to be to, the, to this young man, J. Vernon Shea, for whatever reason. Again, I would love to have the Shea letters to Lovecraft to know how he was responding because Lovecraft keeps digging this hole deeper and deeper. Um, anyways, to another issue in this letter that I think is kind of relevant is he goes back to an issue we talked with Shea before, and that's about pacifism. And he just thinks pacifism is silly and it's a failure. And all you need to do is look at the history of destroyed civilizations, the history of forgotten civilizations and no pacifism is no way to protect one culture or, and it doesn't work right which, is, which you know some truth to that i think um then he gets into what he thinks sees as the coming war uh of course in 1933 it's not that hard to imagine a coming war there's already a lot of violence in east asia growing tension between japan and the united states and, and the rise of the nazis in in europe lead to a growing sense that there's tension. Um, but so he thinks it's happening, but he also says the primary duty of a group, of a civilization, of a society is to defend itself. And so he, it's kind of an argument against fascism. That's, that's all I want to say about it. All right, so that's a, that's a kind of a good letter to read if you want to kind of follow this debate. I think it's the most interesting conversation Lovecraft's having at this time of, in the letters. It's also one of the more ugly aspects um 
So next we have uh, Richard Ellie Morse, uh, November 14th. Uh, much more uh, quiet letter where he talks about the New England autonomous countryside and his own preparations for a winter hibernation. So not much to say about that. And we'll end this episode, which is turning out to be uh, nice and short, thankfully, um, with a couple letters to Farnsworth Rice. Uh, the first on November 14th was about the submission of the Silver Key sequel um, and an ex explanation of who wrote what. Um, basically, he says, like, I did most of the prose is mine, but the big ideas, especially the mathematical schema in that story, come from Price. Uh, so he is kind of acknowledging a mixed authorship here um, in that letter. And then we have on November 21st, just, you know, basically a week later, the acceptance of the Silver Key sequel and a slight conversation about Weird Tales readership at the time. And this has uh, been an ongoing feature of Lovecraft's thinking about Weird Tales is, you know, where do I fit into Weird Tales anymore? Do I even have a place in it? All right, so that's it. Um, like I said, a, sh a short episode, but um, but so much repetition in these letters that I think sometimes it's fine just to just to move on when it's time to move on. But uh, I still have two more episodes that I want to uh, use to explore the rest of the letters. Um, not quite forty, but a few less than that. So still enough to fill out two full episodes. Now, uh, the next episode will cover specifically January 1934 to April 1934. Um, and uh, So anyways, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. And uh, thanks for listening. Now we're strangers. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away. As much as to say You've never known me Stranger After sharing all your kisses